and we're hot. Okay. As is always the case with this class, people will dribble in. It's good to see some visitors with us today. We welcome you. Glad you're here. They know each other, though, because they're waving back and forth. That's great. Well, it's good to, <laughs> good to have you here. Um, I'm introducing a man who needs no <laughs> introduction, and, and we pretty well know that. Um, would suggest, however, and, and I don't know if you're planning on telling this or not, but uh, in about two weeks, John? Yes. About two sorry, weeks, I didn't we know hope you were talking to, to me. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm talking to you, I'm sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, what you have are chapter one and chapter two of a book that is um, probably being printed not as we speak, but maybe tomorrow it continues, who knows. Um, and we will have those for you uh, as a gift of the church to you uh, next week or the week after, whenever I we think get two them. weeks. I think two weeks. So they have, have chapters to, one and two they, to get us through for two weeks. Yes. Right. So take it home and read it. It's um, friendly material. Gracious God, do your thing through John. Uh, bless him in these next many weeks. Allow your word to speak through him. Allow us to see it in, in his bearing with us. Bless his continued work in, in the work of this book. Um, that this may be a, a first run of sorts, but that in it we may begin to glean a, a wonderful future for the teachings that you have given him that find themselves between the covers. Bless his time with us now. Bless us as we seek to understand your will for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to change the battery. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Good morning. Good? Great. Uh, Yeah, I'm glad he said first run. Uh, this book is listed as a first edition, and you may not feel that you could do this, but I'm more than open to any editorial ideas that you have or thoughts that you have as you go through reading this material. And uh, I know Sue Campbell is here, and I know she will find some of my errors, right? <laughs> and... It's so frustrating, and I don't know if any of you have actually ever wrote a book or wrote something that had to be, in quote, perfect. Has anyone ever tried to do that? I, I don't care how hard you try. Um, here we are at the last minute right before it gets sent to the printer, and we're still finding little typos and things like that. So, And especially in a computer age, you know, sometimes you can make a typo, and it, the red line doesn't show up, right? So you have to keep reading over and over and over again to make sure you get it right. So I'm sure you'll find some errors. I do want to point out one thing in the um, copies that you have. I think they probably did this. They gave me the PDF. Uh, this is the way the book is really being set up. But they just gave me the PDF files so I could print them so that you would have copies uh, to get us through the first two weeks. But I noticed that occasionally they put like a little... Um, 
what do you call those things uh, instead of words, um, uh, symbols, uh, not symbols, but um, uh, whirly gigs or, um, uh, you know, they're little uh, computer devices, the symbols that, pop art? Pop art? No, it's, they're like, um, I can't think of the word. They're like icons. They're like icons, okay? You will see that they've stuffed those in occasionally. Uh, you found one? Yeah, what is that? What are these called? I don't know. Uh, like on page five, yeah. On the, yeah, like organized. Yeah, they have these like boxes with X's through them. I think they probably did that so that, you know, they're giving away their their work and they don't want to give away something that's perfect. You see what I'm saying? No, no, it's just a device that they use so that we don't print these off wholesale and then sell them instead of, you know, right. So forgive that. You only have to deal with it for two weeks, okay? All right. All right, here, this course is uh, titled the same as the book, and it's called Beyond Beliefs, and I want to show you a, a passage, and I want us to discuss this for a few minutes, uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, on why I titled this book Beyond Beliefs. So if you could find uh, Ephesians three fourteen through 21, um, it, it does look like very few people brought Bibles, but that's okay. Uh, I, I'll read it, and then maybe we'll struggle through it together. But if you could remember to try to bring a Bible, that would be very helpful to you in the future. All right, ready? This is Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through God's spirit in your inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to God's power that is at work within us, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, those of you who have Bibles, look at verse 19, and I want to ask you a discussion question to start our class off. He says that he wants these people to know this love, Christ's love, that surpasses knowledge. Now, how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Okay. Okay, so through faith. And okay, that's all I <laughs> Well, that's a good thing to have, faith. Yeah, right. Okay, so then we'll start with that. This is, this is talking about what? Not just mental. Uh, through your heart. Uh, maybe it's more uh, 
non-intellectual, maybe it's more uh, what we would call affective or emotional, okay? Supernatural. Uh, could be beyond the natural realm and could be supernatural. It certainly is, hi. Oh, I'm so sorry. George, come on up here and sit in a place of honor. Yes, a place of honor right up here. Well, you just missed the first one, so. <laughs> Why don't you tell us what you think? How can you know something that's beyond knowledge? I, I can't put knowledge in a geographical place, so how can something be behind it? <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> yes, Terry, that's profound, George. It really is. <laughs> uh, I'll, add to, I'll add to your wisdom, George, because I look at this and I think, well, the way it's written, does that mean? that surpasses knowledge is an adjective to the word love. So if you diagrammed it, it is... No, it's referring to the antecedent, that you may know something. That you may know the love of Christ. Yeah, that surpasses knowledge. The love surpasses knowledge. Yeah, so the, the experience of love that he was talking about, like go back up a little bit up into the passage, he says he wants us to know the, weth, the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of Christ's love, that you may know this love, let's read it the way you are, that we may know this love that surpasses knowledge. So, w tell us what you're thinking here. So I'm thinking that surpasses knowledge is an adjective to the love. Okay, so. So, so you can know love, and one of its qualities is that it surpasses knowledge. Okay. Okay. And, and it's beyond knowledge. So, you know so if it's beyond knowledge, then what must it be? If it's not just cognition, if it's not just intellectual. It's heart love. It's emotional love or a, a feeling love. It could be supernatural. And I think the point he's making is, is that it's beyond uh, our beliefs ab about love. Our beliefs are uh, what we believe about love or believe about God, but he's suggesting to us that God is far beyond our ability to even conceive. Now, now, now go to the next section of the verse when he says, now to the one who is able to do far beyond all that we can, what? What's the text say? Ask or imagine. So now he's giving us another way of looking at this, or another suggestion, that there is a, a, something about knowing or experiencing God that is beyond our abilities to even imagine. So how, how does that make you feel to think that something could be beyond, be beyond your ability to know it intellectually? Uh, yes? It makes me feel good. It does? Uh -huh. And that just tells me, don't bother. You're never going to figure it out. <laughs> okay. So, uh, uh, and if you say, don't bother, then where are you going to go uh, if it's... I'm going to leap to faith. Leap to faith. Infinity. Say again, please. Infinity seems like a good word here. We can't understand anything that goes on to infinity. Yeah, infinity. God is infinite. What, what are we... We're finite. 
So one of the big challenges that we have all the way through this biblical story is we're reading about a person that is infinite. Uh, I'm sorry, John. John, go ahead if you want to say something. Okay, so what that whole discussion is about the notion of you can have a, a block of beliefs and then you have which, you know, whatever you want to call that, your doctrine, your beliefs, even like in a, in a political institution, you know, the United States, we, we have a constitution, we believe certain things. We believe these things to be what? Self-evident. Everybody can see them. What do we believe to be self-evident? Like everybody knows them. You don't have to prove it to anybody. All right, well, let's forgive the gender bias back then, and let's, let's amend it to the modern age. They, he, they probably did mean males, but we know that we have to amend it. So all humans are what? Created equal. Uh, We're endowed by our creation. Thank you. Okay, so now you ask yourself the question, did, have we always practiced these things? And myself included, absolutely not. So I don't care what you're talking about, politics, religion, uh, anything that has a, a block of things that we believe about it, we have those beliefs, and then we have our practice, the way we integrate it. And so, yeah, this is a common, this is part of the human condition that we don't always live out or live up to or allow what we say we believe to become part of our lived experience. So this is one of many, many passages in the entire New Testament that talks about this idea that God and, and what the New Apostles were really trying to talk about isn't just for us to get a set of beliefs in our head about something. They're actually saying, yeah, that's part of the Christian experience, but the deeper part beyond the beliefs is what? What's beyond beliefs? Experience to know God by experience, to, to know God in ways that deal with your uh, actual lived life and not just about God. It's more of a experience. And this scares some people. Why do you, yes, Sue?
try to isolate and organize some of that as we leave alone that other part that is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to look at beliefs and laws and so on and focus on that and avoid this other this other. <laughs> and the other being the experience. what? The well, experience. Well, the beliefs come out of our experience, but those are the ones that we're able to deal with. And so we put them up and we focus on that, but boy, we sure avoid all the rest of it. And we want, we're talking about it almost as if it were um, or extraordinary rather than ordinary. Yes. What, what, who thinks they know why this is? Why? And I agree with you. Everything is experiential in that yeah. sense. And once you have an experience, then your intellect kicks in and you start right. thinking about it and you try to understand it and organize it and everything. And uh, isolate it. And isolate <laughs> it. Why, why do we stop there, though? Why, why is it scary to go into the next level? All right, tell us what you mean by that, whoever said that, David. We prefer to be masters of our own universe. Mm -hmm. We want to control everything. So if we can define something, we can use words to lay it all out, put it in a box, then we are in control of those things. And is that what you mean? Yeah, and our yeah. own wants, for that matter. Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about some other wants. All right, so uh, here, we, on, you know, we find in the New Testament, though, sure, there's lots of beliefs. They're telling us th certain things that we should believe, but they're always moving us towards uh, the second level. You believe these things so that you can enter into this experience, and you to understand that this experience is going to be actually much bigger than your own mental conceptions about that. So... Yeah, that involves this notion of uh, exchange or giving up or surrendering something about ourselves, surrendering the control. Uh, and yes? And change. We don't want to change. We don't want to change. That's the scary thing, I think, is the change. If you're looking at a set of wor words on a piece of paper, and you can, as it were, like keep them there, but if they become living and actually, uh, in, in a sense that you enter into those words, it could change your life and that you don't know what's going to happen then, right? Yes, John. What, what about someone like me who doesn't trust experience? For example, Christ says, blessed are you when men revile you and curse you and say all manner of evil against you, rejoice. That's not my response. So what, you're, you're saying that there are certain things in the New Testament uh, that, that the experiences that, that are suggested might be ours, that, that isn't, that's not what we want. Yeah. Yeah, I, my experience, I don't like it when people, are, are, when people hate me. I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Christ says I should. I believe him, but I still don't like it. Well, then let it fly. Then make him feel good. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't send me a message. 
Yes, John. I just wanted to throw in a different perspective and, and view that pops into my head. And, and I'm going to back up really to the beginning of the conversation and that, that cognitive that you spoke of, awareness of mm -hmm. God. And, uh, and you asked the one young lady how it makes her feel. And uh, those experiences for me, even though I don't understand them, embracing them and seeing the outcome in God in work takes me to, I'm going to assume, I, I know within myself a different level, and that endorses and, and encourages and, and fertilizes my faith. And that's all I really need to take from it is, I can't explain it, I can't wrap my head around it, but there's another stamp and proof of, and of faith, another layer of faith for me of evidence of supernatural God working in my life. Yeah, it would make sense that if God is God and, and the supernatural realm is real, it would just make logical sense that right. eventually you're going to run into things that are beyond your conception, your, your own constructs. And that's one of the ways that you would say that you know that you're experiencing God. Is that where you're kind of going? That this affirms your faith that when you run into those situations? Well, if, instead of letting it puzzle me, yeah. And trying to contemplate it and figure it out cognitively with my human mind, right. I surrender that and just say, thank you, God. There's another layer of faith on my onion. Okay, that's good. Yes, Dr. Smith? Pastor, he had an awesome experience at college. He experienced Jesus, and it changed his whole life. Yeah. Well, what about it? What? What? what ask him what you want to ask me anything. What you just talked about? Well, he's. Uh, let me just speak for you, and then you can start. He did what Sue just said. I mean, everything is experience. Right. So you had an experience, and then you started pondering it and thinking about it, and then you started trying to follow that experience and of course your intellect kicked in and you came to understand oh well now that I've had this experience what what yeah. happened well the life transforms okay I mean you begin to your mind informs your action I hope and so for me the two kind of combine and it's a it's an everyday um, both tussle and grace mm -hmm. to to keep those two moving and communicating with each other, intellect and experience. Right. Um, and for me, the, the tough part is to continue to allow experience to have its, its weight. I mean, it's much more natural for me to allow my mind to have the weighty part of the discussion, but the reality right. is it's the experience. Yeah. Uh, I would say that anybody that has these experiences and then goes to seminary, that's exactly what happens, right? Um, you get inundated with every form of theological construct that has ever been conceived of. And it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. And then that becomes the, the goal, is to understand all these different uh, theories and, and theologies and ways of looking at God. And then what happens to experience? Oh, it goes by the wayside. It can very easily do that. 
Uh, yes, Dr. Smith. Wait a second. Wait, Jerry, hold on. <laughs> a, word of, a word about the a word, a housekeeping word. John has set up a participatory democracy here today, so we all feel like we're going to talk. We are taping this, as we do every week, so if you can, before you speak, try to get eye contact with me, and I'll show up with the mic, and then you can make your question. So here you go, Jerry. Uh, I really wasn't going to hassle Dave when I started to talk about the, have the, having the experience first and then, uh, then learn. I have a daughter-in-law that uh, grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. She hated it and uh, just uh, fought her mother all the time. Then she had a big experience and she went to one of these... Uh, I call them holy roller type of churches over there, and she got it. I mean, it was. I think the technical designation is that she went to a charismatic church. Okay, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll take that one. Okay. And, and she keeps studying. Really, you know, it's been 10, 12 years, and she studies all the time, like any of us. Ironically, it probably will wind up to be that that she may have uh, rejected some of her Dutch reformed. Uh, rigidity, but if you actually laid out what she believes now, if, if you could get her to do that, and then lay out what the Dutch Reform viewpoint is, there would be much more in common than there would be uh, not, which is a, a delicious irony. On the theology, okay, very good. Question for you, Dr. Guy. Yes. Is part of our problem with this passage that at the American culture we have become so addicted to the scientific method of looking at things. Well, Otherwise, thank you we for can't quantify it, we can't put it in the test tube, whatever. Thank we, you for we, such a shock, uh, shockingly good insight, really, it is. Um, these people that are writing this literature, the early followers of Jesus, what kind of a wor world did they live in? One dominated by science and empiricism and the scientific method as we have? No. Uh, so they didn't have a lot of the barriers to the notion of experiencing God that we do. Uh, in our culture, yes, it's been raised up that unless we can test it and weigh it and measure it and smell it and verify it, what? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist or I, w I won't acknowledge it as being a part of my lived reality, yes. So absolutely, the culture that we live in, we have to understand. All right, now let me ask you another question. These are, uh, I, I take, I'm just going to give you three things today that I think are core to understanding the whole book. Can you help me understand or talk about the notion of beliefs? And I, I don't mean it verses, but I want to make some sort of a contrast. Beliefs. And we could say f and faith too. But what's, what's, is there a distinction between these? And if so, what? Yes, sir. Belief, I feel, is an idea. Mm -hmm. Is a, is a, philosophy per se faith is a verb so let's just call belief a noun and faith a verb for starters all right you want to call this a verb 
and you want to call this an idea. So this is something you hold in your head. This is something that is more action. Or non-action okay. in some instances. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, okay, great. Something you wouldn't do. Anybody else? Beliefs and faith. What's the difference? I'll go with one usually ends up being a system, uh, i.e. systematic theology, and the other is um, spirit-led or, or um, lived out, but that comes back to verb. Uh, it has um, something to do with um, life. Uh, it has something to do with experience. Is that what you mean? Well, I'll keep thinking on it. Okay. Commitment. Uh, help me understand that. So, which is the commitment and uh, the uh, the idea that I'm committing uh, myself to uh, the belief, but in the case of the Christian faith, I would rather say commitment to person of Christ. Okay, so this is involved with a commitment to a person. Very good. This is a belief, maybe even, this is the way it helps me to think about it. It's about something. Beliefs are always about something, organized by your intellectual capacity. Faith is always an entrance into or a commitment into something. And of course, in the Christian faith, it's a commitment to a person, not just to a system or an idea. You can state your beliefs, but you can't, right here. Oh, sorry. But, but faith is intangible? Um, maybe do you mean like absolute, maybe not definable, not like beliefs you can define and say, I believe X, Y, and Z, but faith is something that is more like an attitude or a, a posture. It's not something that you can actually define. You can ask for more faith, uh-huh. but you, you don't ask for more beliefs. The Bible says you can ask for more faith. Yeah. Um, this, I think, uh, usually involves more of the will this usually involves more of the mind. This you can choose, and you can ask for more faith, as you put it, and experience more faith. John? Or? May we ask if uh, beliefs and faith are not the same as truth? For example, a scientist checks things out in test tubes. Historians make fun of that. Yeah, at one period of history, the scientists were saying this. So many years later, the scientific community had changed, and they were saying that. Okay, Edward Gibbon wrote the history of the Roman Empire. Today we say, he didn't write a history of Rome, he wrote a history of how a British elite see Rome. You know, when a historian writes something, that's history. That's it. Now, is it true? 
in part, probably, not to, but it's not complete truth. Somebody else comes along and says, wait a minute, what about this and this and this? And they write, ah, now we have a revised history and now we have a discussion. My point is, <clears throat> beliefs are one thing, here's my faith, here's my beliefs, but don't ever assume my faith and my beliefs reflect the fullness or the That's perfect nice truth right of God. there. That's very good what you just said. So um, obviously, in, unless you have like a lot of problems, you're not going to believe something willingly that's not true, right? So what we do believe, what we wind up believing, we think at least ten, at the point of believing it, we think it's true. But then as we go through life, we find out what that our 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 um, beliefs can change and modify. In the Christian system, when you put faith in Christ, it's not that your faith changes, or because the object of your faith, the person that you're putting faith in, always remains the same, right? Jesus remains the same. Now, your understanding of him can grow, your experience of him can grow, your faith in him can grow, your ability to trust him can grow, uh, but this is, this is much more constant than this. This is much more fluctuating. At least it should be, because we're finite, and we're never going to know all of the truth. So when we, we start talking about beliefs versus faith, uh, I, I just brought this money today here to just kind of give you a little illustration. I know all of you have traveled overseas. You're very familiar with the notion of exchange. Uh, here is some money I brought back from uh, Myanmar. Uh, this is a 1,000. It says 1,000 on it. Uh, this is roughly uh, this is a, a jet is how you pronounce it. So 1,000 of these is equal to about one American dollar. Now here's some Thai money, bot, and this says 20 on it, and 20 of these is roughly equivalent to one US dollar, roughly equivalent to 1,000 jets. So the notion of exchange is very familiar to us in, in our everyday life. We give one thing and we get something back, and when we do this, we are assuming that there's some sort of equivalent value or that it's a good deal or whatever. So what would you have to exchange if, if you wanted to, and the New Testament puts a lot of emphasis on this, it wants you to have beliefs, but this is the emphasis that the New Testament really calls you to. So what do you have to exchange if you're going to live in this realm more so than in this realm, what will you have to exchange? What will you have to give up? The provable. The provable. Okay. You mean the... Okay. Okay, so... You're going to have to give up or exchange, exchange this exclusive way of knowing something by scientific empiricism in favor of some other way of knowing. And that other way of knowing is experience. Yes? Could part of this be the natural human urge to control and influence? For example, um, a mother who is not very well educated and has her first child. First child wakes up from the nap and is running a tremendous fever. 
takes the baby to the hospital. The doctor takes one quick assessment and believes this child will die. The mother believes that having delivered her child into the hands of the doctor, he will not die, and she has faith in God who will control this rather than all of the facts. Yeah, that, that would be a, a pretty good illustration. I mean, if, if you were exclusively looking at things from a scientific point of view. Uh, do you, by the way, do you know what this Apache diagnostic thing, code device is? Uh, I have another doctor that told me that they use this thing that's called Apache, and they can, they can fill in all of the data. Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's... It, well, it's, um, it's basically a computerized way of looking at illness, and they can feed in all of the factors, and they have such a wide database that they can predict to the high 90 percentile whether someone's going to die or not, right? Okay. <coughs> now, are they always right? <coughs> no, because <coughs> statistics and science are not always right, but... 98% of the time, when they code somebody's vitals into an Apache system, they can pretty much tell you to the 98th percentile, this person's going to live or this person's going to die. But you're talking about, well, that's not the, the total end of the story. I mean, God is bigger than our statistical models, and God's outside of our box. And so, yes, something else could be true other than just exactly what we believe about any particular medical situation. Yes. The question is, what do we have to exchange? Yes, that's what I want to know. To like, move from beliefs to faith? Yes. Agency. Okay, help us understand. Um, the belief that, or the fact that I function for myself, that um, I am an agent of my own purpose and will and desire, mm -hmm. whatever that may be, good or bad, it is still a matter of, of my decision as opposed okay. to moving beyond agency to whatever is opposite. This, this, is, uh, this is really very much about yourself, and it's very much about your mind. In the Christian sense, faith is very much about what? It's about a person, God, or you know, specifically Jesus, and our trust in him. And it isn't so much about our mind, it's about what? It's a relationship that involves what? Our hearts are our whole beings. It's a holistic experience. It isn't just a mind. All right, so let's have one more comment on this and then... Hold on, Jerry. Look me in the eye. Yeah, you didn't follow the rule. Uh, I, I have, uh, I had an experience with, you know, I didn't have much in the way of beliefs about God when I got to medical school. Uh, some, because I, I w went to Sunday school and church and everything. But, uh, and also, I had very much confidence in the, the science that I was studying. Now, the, the, the science was so complicated and so minute and so amazing to me that that gave me more faith that there was a God guiding this whole business than uh, anything up to that point in my life. Mm -hmm. I had buddies that rejected 
uh, God and religion and everything because we know we're going to get the uh, the God particle like they're trying to get right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, and in fact, though, Jerry, you did have certain beliefs about God at that point. You just weren't aware of them. Like one of the things that you kind of believed was what? You, did, you might not have been aware of this, but you did believe something about God. That the pursuit of medicine, the pursuit of science, was a much more vital way to experience life than to sit around and ponder notions about God. Right? So that, in effect, is a belief, too. And one of the things about our beliefs is, and then when you got into it, then you started realizing what? Wait a second. My belief about God was fairly uh, narrow because the more I got into science, the more I began to realize that, hey, belief in God very well may be warranted. And so then what started happening was what? You exchanged a mental, scientific, not that you were atheist or anything like that, but you exchanged a primary mental construct of your scientific outlook in life for a, a mindset that allowed for something that was bigger than you. Okay, that's the move from beliefs to faith. So that's one of the things I try to deal with in the book. Now, we're running out of time, so I want to get to the last two just so that you can have some background when you start reading. I want to talk about words and the word, and some of you have heard me talk about this before. I brought the biggest Bible that I have, <coughs> my grandparents' Bible, uh, and, you know, we are the descendants of a group of people, Jewish people, who starting around uh, 1450 uh, BC began to be very preoccupied with what? A book. I'm not not deprecating this at all. I spent my whole life studying the Bible, so uh, I love the words of God, so don't don't take this the wrong way. Uh, Think about it, 1500 years adding to the foundation of what Moses and uh, the early Jewish writers wrote, the compilation of all these uh, words and books and studying and rabbis who memorize them and master the words, and then along comes who? Jesus. And what does the New Testament wind up concluding uh, that Jesus is? What does it call him? What's the primary? Oh, yeah, Messiah. The Word. So at the heart of the Christian message is a movement from a a book-centered, a bibliocentric way of looking at life to, and I, the only way I can illustrate Jesus is using a glass of water here. Sorry. Uh, Moving from a book to, to, to the Word, but the Word is a person. The move from a book to a person. Now, what do you think about that? The move from a book to a person. The move to, from having a bunch of beliefs about a set of words predicated upon your ability to process those words to moving into a faith and, a, and an entrance into a person. How does that strike you? What, how do you feel about that? Well, the, uh, the Greek word in John 1, when he says, in the beginning was the word, 
is actually the word logos. Yes, you're right, George. He uses this term, uh, logos. And, you know, he stole this word. I mean, this isn't something that the Christians invented. He borrowed it or stole it actually from a Greek philosophical system called Stoicism. And they had this notion that the logos was the impersonal um, intelligence that permeated the entire universe. It was the thing that made the universe be what it is and organized the way that it is. But it wasn't a person. So yeah, they borrow that word and now, now they move from uh, talking about the, the words of God to the word of God, the logos. And so in effect, John is saying what? That what you guys used to think was the impersonal intelligence that permeated the universe, I am now saying to you is actually a personal being. And you can know this personal being. Yes, Jerry. Um, some of the Bible people like David and Abraham and so forth, they certainly had a personal relationship to God. Not denying that they didn't. Um, but like, for example, if you take um, Psalm 119, and if some of you just want to look at it really briefly. This is, I'm doing this because you mentioned David. What he does is he takes the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew alphabet. This is A in Hebrew. B. And I'll just go, you know, I could just go right on down. In Psalm 19, what he does is list out the alphabet. And then each sentence in each of those eight uh, verses that comprise each of the sections of Psalm 119, he starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Is anybody looking at, uh, Terry, are you looking at Psalm 119? What's the first sequence that, what's it called? The glories of God's law. Yeah, but what, does he, is there a little Hebrew word there that it says right at the beginning that, at the beginning? Yeah, well, that's a bad Bible. <laughs> it's the Presbyterian Bible. It's the Presbyterian Bible. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh. All right. Well, then you're going to have to take this on faith since they don't do it anymore. They used to, like, verses 1 through 8 would be prefaced by the word Aleph. Verses 9 through 17 would be prefaced by the word Bait, or the letter B. Now, he started every sentence in the first eight verses with the letter A. He started every sentence in the next eight verses with the letter B, and so ran through the entire uh, Hebrew alphabet in an attempt to say what? I'm going to use all of the characters that make up our alphabet, and I'm going to expound on what? What are words made out of? Letters. And so the whole psalm is an exaltation of the word of God using a stylized rhetorical device to get the point across. Now, unfortunately, you don't know Hebrew, so you missed that. And now, now that they've stripped Aleph and Baith and Gimel and everything else out of the thing, you would not even know that. But you see what the author is doing here. So, of course, David was preoccupied with the words of God 
because that's what they had at that time. But what's the move of Scripture? From words about God to what? To God who is the Word. You see that move? This is what we can read, master, study, outline, analyze. This, I suppose you could study, analyze, master Jesus. That doesn't sound right, does it? You can master a book. When you start talking about a person, then what? Now you have a relationship with a person. Now, a lot of people wanted to jump in, so yeah. go for it. We, we have um, Bible here. <laughs> oh, there, you found a Bible that actually does it. Thank you. There was, not only just back in David's time, but there was a, a minister by the name of Kettlewell who uh, d- developed uh, alphabet, with our alphabet, Bible verses, so you could remember each Bible verse talking about it again. He's referring to my father. Yes, that, I know he. <laughs> but that, in in a literary sense, that's called an acrostic. Yes, poem. Yes, it's an acrostic poem. Right. Thank you. And he knows that because he's studying literature at Kent State now, right? Well, yes, they're studying me actually. <laughs> John, <laughs> I just got that. Um, what? What? Looking at the words and the word, say a word about Revelation. Uh, help me just a little bit. What? Well, the words, what function do the words play in Revelation, and then what function does the word play in Revelation? Okay, well, to reveal something is to make something that was previously unknown to be known. Okay, so yeah, the Bible in itself is a, is a revelation in the sense that it is revealed words about God written according to the biblical authors under the inspiration of God so that they got it right. And I don't want to get into a big discussion on inerrancy. But they, what they were given to you is accurate information because God was giving it to them. Sure, it came through their cultural <laughs> model. Sure, it came through their intellectual framework. Sure that the authors have differing ways of express, expressing things. But behind the whole thing is God inspiring them or revealing to them these words. This, these are revelations about God. This is the revelation of God. This is God. This is the revelation of God. God revealed. This is information about God. This is God. See the difference? Now, where do you think we've, uh, think about the last 2,000 years of Christian history, what have we focused on? And, and inevitably, that you're, if you focus on this, inevitably you're going to have arguments about the words because we all have different intellectual abilities, all have different ways of reading, all have different ways of understanding, and now in the modern world, complicated even more, we now have 50 different Bibles. So have you ever been in a modern Bible study and people will sit around and say, that's not what my Bible says. We have all these different translations. The move of the New Testament is 
never to deprecate this, but to move you from this into this, into Jesus, into the person of God. All right, those are at least two things. Yes, Leslie. Might not be on. But her first sentence was, don't you think we still have a problem being preoccupied with the words? <coughs> um, Just speak a little louder. Listen to I know. <laughs> It's, can you hear me now? (laughs) So this is the focus when Christians are talking to people that aren't yet Christians. Yes, and then what happens is we go back to just focusing on the words and not, you know, it's about daily devotions and remembering, like he said, um, the um, remembering Bible verses. And Mm. I still feel like churches are still not moving to that point. Okay, and so. I, I basically agree with you, and I'm, I don't want this to come off negative or deprecatory. I'm just trying to analyze. I think what the apostles wanted to do was move us from the words into the word, and the whole book I'm arguing is the case that there is a lot more about the Christian experience than just focusing on the words. God wants to take us into the word and have an experience with Jesus. So I have one final comment. Yes, sir. How then do you deal with Christ's statement that he came to abolish the law and that he also came to fulfill the law? Um, well, the fulfillment part is easy. Everything that was written about him was pointing to him, and he himself is the climax. He's the apex. He's you know, he's what everything was all about. So what he is, is the fulfillment of whatever, what God in, entailed or what God wanted. The abolished part is that there are certain things that your parents taught you that were true at a certain point in time in your development. But as you matured, they were no longer true and they could be theoretically said to be abolished. Like... No, wait a second. You've got to answer this. Uh, okay, Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. But think about something more, maybe a little bit more uh, practical to your lived experiences. When you were a little kid, your parents told you what? Don't never do this. Don't go out in the uh, street. Don't, don't swim until an hour after you've eaten. <laughs> okay, don't go out in the street. Your parents tell you that. Is it good advice? Is error? Is it a wrong thing to say? No, when you're five, brilliant advice. Uh, when you're, how old are you? Don't answer. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> okay, but somewhere between five and 85, we got to go out into the street and it's no longer good advice. So when the Bible talks about getting rid of the law or passing by the law, It doesn't mean that the law was wrong or that the words were wrong. It means that God has moved on to the higher level of what God wanted for us as mature humans. And that is to move from a set of words about God into God. Yes, Terry. Isn't a great example of that, the whole thing about clean and unclean food? And when Peter had the vision and he 
and he had to go to Cornelius and talk, and the only way he was going to be able to get through was to eat what they um, actually served. Yeah. And so it became more about what God is asking us to do in our experience. Yes, right. That's a great one. The, the, at one point, those words were true for the Jewish people. At another point, when they reached their maturity, they're no longer right. vital because Jesus has set them aside because Jesus is the ultimately clean person and he has made us clean. We don't have to worry about the symbols anymore. All right, John, now you get the final word because we've got to go. Another example is... If your child is disrespectful, stone them to death. <laughs> That's what it says. Now, then along comes Jesus and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Okay, so these progressions uh, I, I try to show throughout the whole book. Okay, your assignment, read the first chapter. It's, the e it's probably the easiest one, and it's also probably the hardest one. Um, it's easy because it's short. I use simple language. It's hard because you're going to run into a concept here. Uh, I'll just give you a hint on. Uh, God is agape. That's a quote from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is agape. I want you to think about that when you read the chapter a couple of times. God, God is agape. God is a person. Love is a person. I just want you to think about this this week, okay? So God bless you. I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.